0: The book of Acts, chapter 21 through 16, but we'll begin by just reading verses 7 through 11. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, As Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Let's ask God's blessing. Oh, Father, we pray that you would take this ancient text and illuminate it to us by the power of the Spirit, that we would relate with our brother Paul and with the church who witnessed this amazing event so that we can learn from them, so that we can repent of our sins, and we can follow you more faithfully. May the Word of God do exactly what you call it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 121, the Bible says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Have you ever thought about that when you lay your head down at night? That God holds all things together. And while you're sleeping, and you may not even think about it, God is still working. God is still awake. God is still keeping this universe intact. He is still keeping every cell in your body where it needs to be. God does not sleep, God is always working. The God that we praise. The God to whom we pray. The God whom we confess. The God whom we believe. The God whom we considered last Sunday is the God who raises the dead. Every Easter Sunday we're reminded of this this fact about God. And we also tell ourselves that He is still the God who raises the dead. Every day, not just on Easter Sunday and not just on Sunday. God does not sleep. He not only orders all things, he keeps all things. Colossians tells us that by him, all things exist. If God ceased to exist, you and I would cease to exist, the universe would cease to exist. Every molecule in this universe is dependent upon God's existence. Within his church, within us as the believers in God, He is always working. He is always doing things behind the scenes. Sometimes we call it the unseen hand of God. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, back in the 1800s, was known to have said, God is always advancing. Even in times of your life when things seem still and stagnant, God is advancing and ordering all things according to His will for His glory, which is good. And to all these truths that I just said, I suspect many, if not all of us, would say, Amen, I agree with that. We nod our heads. We concur. But boy, how soon we forget, right? We forget God is on the throne. We reduce God down to our level. We may not say this aloud. We may not you know, fill in the blank on a multiple choice or a fill in the blank a theology test and even say this, but we sometimes think that God forgets or that God gets tired or that God didn't know something was going to happen or that God is surprised. We function that way. Our confession might be that God is omnipotent and omniscient, but the way we function is often as though God is a man who gets tired and doesn't know everything. Not only that, our days are filled with work, right? And concerns about tomorrow and about anxieties about the future. And oftentimes we spend our waking moments amusing ourselves to death. And so we pursue distractions and we're often caught up in just the mundane things of life. And so today, I pray that this inspired text will help us all to to open our eyes and see that the Lord is working. He's working in your life. He is working in the church's life when you see it and when you don't see it. He is doing miracles in the midst of the mundane And He does these things to assure His people that He is with us. Brothers and sisters, the God of this universe is with us. And He is for us. When all seems lost, when you're struggling to have hope, can I remind you, God is for you. And you'll see that here today. In Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, we see an ordained journey. Now that title is a little misleading because it implies that there are other journeys other than those which are ordained. But the truth is, all things are ordained by God. The journey that you're on in life right now, no matter where you are geographically, has been ordained by God. God makes no mistakes. And in this passage... It's sort of like a sandwich. The first six verses is the top bread, which is about Paul's journey. And the last uh, few verses, verses um, 12 to 16, are also about Paul's journey. And in the middle of the sandwich, the, the meaty part, the part with the good you know, cherry peppers and the balsamic vinegar, that is the miracle, the raising to life of Eutychus. But don't lose sight of the bread. Don't lose sight of the first few verses or the last few verses where it seems that all Luke is concerned about is talking about Paul went here, then he went here, then he went here. There's, there's purpose behind everything in God's Word. And so Paul is on an ordained journey. In Acts 18, it began Paul's third and final missionary journey. He, he Every time Paul leaves his home church... In Antioch of Syria, that is what we call a missionary journey. It's like for many of us, we're, we're members here in Kearney. But if you were a missionary, you might come back here for a few weeks and report what you did and spend time with us in fellowship and worship. And then you'd say, now I'm going to go back out again and, and, and evangelize. And Paul did this three times. And we're now on his third missionary journey. So Acts 18, 19, 20, sort of a hinge of the book of Acts. In verse 21 of chapter 19, Paul reveals his desire. He says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so what we have in Paul's third missionary journey is his desire to go to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. Now we've all had desires to travel, have we not? Whether it's for a missionary trip or a vacation... And so we can relate with Paul. Paul really wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to celebrate the Passover. He wants to go there for Pentecost. And then he wants to see Rome. Now, this is a preview, but I, I imagine many of us know that Paul would meet his ultimate demise in Rome. So it's very much like the journey of our Lord. When Jesus Christ, the Bible says, set his face toward Jerusalem... He was setting his face toward his death. Paul, setting his face toward Jerusalem and then to Rome, is doing the same thing. But every step of the way, he trusts in the Lord. He's setting his face towards these destinations. But along the way, there will be obstacles, there will be setbacks, there will be detours. How many of us can relate to that? How many of us can think back years ago, thinking in five years, ten years, I'm going to be here. I'll be doing this thing. I'll be working here. And your life has been filled with twists and turns and setbacks and obstacles and detours. You're in good company. What do you do, though? Just focus on the detours? Get upset about the roadblock? Get frustrated by the circumstances? Or... You can choose to recognize God's sovereignty and realize that He's got you. That even in the twists and turns, He is with you. And He is ordaining a path for you, even if you don't understand it, ultimately for your good and His glory. Look with me in verses 1 to 6. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. After the uproar ceased, this was what happened in Ephesus with the riot, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Uh, I'll just stop there for a second. Macedonia would be the region where you would find the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So that's where he's headed. He's saying goodbye. Verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now, again, stop there for a moment, because we're hearing these, these words, but it's better to relate them to the churches that were there. Greece would be where Corinth was. So he's traveling, in verse 1, Philippi, the book of Philippians, Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians, and Berea. And now he's going to Greece, which is Corinth, the books of First and 2 Corinthians, verse 3. There he spent three months, And when a plot was made against him by the Jews As he was about to set sail for Syria He decided to return through Macedonia But don't don't lose sight of what happened here Paul has determination He knows where he's going Hello to Philippi Hello to Thessalonica Hello to Berea Hello to Corinth Now he wants to go to Syria All along the way so far Wherever he wanted to go He was going But now There's a roadblock Now there's an obstacle Verse 3 tells us there was a plot made against him by the Jews in Corinth. So what does Paul have to do? He has to take a detour. He has to take a different route. He has to change his plans. And boy, don't we, don't we sometimes hate it when we have to change our plans? When we have to take a detour? Just this weekend, I was on a retreat with uh, two of the other pastors, Pastor Job and, and uh, Pastor Eli. Uh, the, the Adamos and the Garofalos went for a hike and <laughs> we've both gone on hikes before I did the research so this is on me and we went to this park and I was looking for a trail and we all agreed that a 3.5 mile trail was just right it was a 2 mile trail too easy it was you know, 6, 7, 8, 9 miles too much 3.5 miles, sign me up On the website, it said, easy to moderate. I didn't do any other research. Most of the hiking trails I have hiked in New Jersey are loops. That means you start in the parking lot, you take the three and a half miles, and you're back where you started. We hiked for a couple hours. We stopped at the waterfall. We admired God's nature and creation. And we got to the parking lot, but it was not a loop. We look at the sign, and it tells us that our parking lot is three and a half miles back that way. Well, Pastor Joe and Anita were on their way to the house where we were staying, so we called them and said, you know, where are you? Maybe we thought they can pick us up. Do you know it was 40 minutes driving from where we landed to getting back to our car? The only solution for us is to go back. And we did. Seven miles of a walk, for someone like me, that's for some of you, it's probably nothing. But for me, that's that's a year's worth of walking. Um, I understand what it's like, and so do you. When things do not turn out the way you imagined, thank God I had brothers and sisters that day to encourage me along the way. Look at verse four. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Paul had friends along the path, and they were all from these different churches. Verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now again, this seems like a lot of detail, like where does it all fit? Verse 5, look at that again. I'm sorry, verse 6. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. That's the Passover. That means that because of Paul's detour, he was not able to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. So already there's a disappointment in Paul. There's something he wanted to do that he couldn't do. But there's no hint here of frustration, is there? It's simply, okay, Lord, you turn me around. And I'll go this way. And would to God that that would be our attitude. How often we, we sort of wallow in the fact that I thought it was going to be something else. Why, God? But Paul is an example of someone who can handle that kind of disappointment. Now, verse 6 tells us that he lands at Troas. Paul would not have gone back to Troas... If he followed his original plan. But because God turned him around, he lands at Troas. So the story that we're about to see in Troas of Eutychus being raised to life would never have happened if Paul didn't get turned around. And I wonder if we could think the same about our own lives. That had God not put an obstacle in our path, that at the time we thought, this is really untimely. But it was because of that detour that God has worked in us miracles, whether they're seen or unseen. So that brings us now to verses 7 through 11. Paul is at Troas, he's at the town that he didn't plan to go to. And for some reason, in the providence of God, by the power of the Spirit, Luke zooms in to verses 7 through 11 and tells us about Troas. He doesn't tell us about what happened in the other towns, but he, he, he is given inspiration by God to, to zoom in and be more detailed about this one day in Troas. So I already read it in the beginning of the sermon, verses 7 through 11, but let's just go through it verse by verse. On the first day of the week. This, by the way, sort of a side note, But this is the first mention of how the the church gathered on the Lord's Day. There are those out there today that will tell you that the Lord's Day is really still the Sabbath, Saturday, the seventh day. And that for some, for Christians who worship on Sunday, we're, we're not being biblical and we're being influenced by paganism. And brothers and sisters, that's a lie. God has it in Scripture multiple times that the Lord's people gather on the Lord's day and the Lord's day is the first day because that is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. God is making all things new. The the Old Testament, the Old Covenant served its purpose and it points us to Christ but now the old is gone, the new has come. And so when we celebrate every Sunday, we are celebrating new life. And that is why we gather On Sunday and not Saturday. It is a precedent set in Scripture. We don't do that because of tradition. Oh, they might say that's why, but it's from Scripture. So verse 7 tells us on the first day of the week, and then it says, We were gathered together to break bread. That's communion. Often in the early church, it was a communal meal, but the communal meal had an aspect of the Lord's Supper in it. So they gathered every week, every first day of the week, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, And it says, Paul, talk with them. I'm assuming that Paul gave them scriptural truths, a sermon of some sort. So what do you you have here? You have a church service, right? They're gathering. We're gathering. There's preaching. There's the breaking of bread, which also entails fellowship. So it says in verse 7, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Isn't that every church member's favorite thing? When the pastor prolongs his speech. Until midnight, by the way. Now there's debate about when, when the service actually started. But, but let's assume it started um, maybe in sunrise on, on Sunday. Or even if it started in 3 p.m. Even if it started 6 p.m. <laughs> Going until midnight is quite a long time. And it says he prolonged his speech, not his dialogue, like later on he's having more of a dialogue, but this is a speech. This is him standing before everyone and talking and talking and talking. And then verse 8, very interesting. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Okay, like thank you for that information, Luke. Remember, this is inspired scripture. No detail is incidental. There's a reason for us to know this. And Luke, who is a doctor by trade, he understands which details to leave in and leave out. Most likely, Luke includes verse 8 about there being many lamps in the room to show us that it's a crowded room and it's very warm. Perhaps you feel that here today, right? It's like maybe 70 degrees outside, but it's humid. And hopefully, you don't fall asleep during this sermon. But the temptation to fall asleep when it's warm and humid is a lot more, isn't it? It's also nighttime. And by lamps, I hope you understand, by lamps, they don't mean lamps that you, you flip a switch. We're talking about candles. We're talking about torches. There's flames. This is a, a warm, humid, crowded room. And Paul is talking on and on, so you kind of get the atmosphere here. There's no, um, there's no posting that says the capacity, hundred people. So it's probably really so crowded that Eutychus is sitting in a windowsill. So it's crowded. There's no safety codes. You know, do you have an exit sign? Is everything updated? And we have this young man, Eutychus, in verse uh, nine. By young man. We assume he's about a teenager. He's sitting at the window. And he sank into a deep sleep. Now before you get on him, you know, probably, that you've done the same. I remember falling asleep many times in class, especially. Sometimes I'd lean back and I would fall into such a deep sleep that my head would snap back and that would wake me up. Or I would lean on my arm. And then once I lost consciousness, my arm would fall down, my head would fall down, and that would wake me up as well. I don't know if everyone here, but I would imagine most of us can relate to sleeping in class or perhaps even sleeping in church. Eutychus is no exception, right? It's not not just today's people, right? Humans are humans. Whereas maybe a teenager today would have been up all night playing video games, Eutychus most likely was working out in the field all day. So he's working, he's tired, he's hearing the Apostle Paul, and he falls out of the window. Now the tragedy in this, of course, is that the Bible says in verse 9, he was taken up dead. Luke says this so kind of like matter-of-factly, right? Eutychus falls out three stories and dies in the middle of a church service. If that's not going to startle you, I don't know what would Bear in mind, brothers and sisters, this is not a message on falling asleep in church. I'm not going to use this as some preachers might be tempted to to warn you about the dangers of falling asleep in church. It's it's understandable what happened. Nor are we trying to criticize the Apostle Paul here by preaching on and on. Luke does tell us it's on and on, but he doesn't doesn't mention that Paul shouldn't have taught. It says back in in verse... um, Uh, Seven Intending to depart the next day, he prolonged his speech. And so Paul is trying to cram in everything he wants to say to this church before he leaves. And being how dangerous it was, whenever Paul would leave a church, he had no idea if that was the last time he would see these people. And so, some have suggested that Paul here preached a killer sermon. Um, sorry, I... but obviously it's a major interruption in the life of the church. We have had, even in our own midst, um, things that have interrupted us before, but imagine it being that crucial, that weighty, someone literally falls out of a window. I'm sure the tone of that service changed very quickly. I'm sure people were very upset. Luke implies this when he tells us that Paul has to comfort them. And verse 9 tells us he was taken up dead. Now, I will say, just so you're aware, there are commentators who say that taken up dead means that the people thought he was dead and Paul was simply assuring them that he's not actually dead. But all signs and all commentators, I think, who did the best job here, point us to the fact that, no, no, he really was dead. And this... What's about to happen really is a miracle. Remember, last week we talked about the God who raises the dead. And we mentioned how He's not only the God who raises the dead on Easter Sunday, He is always the God who raises the dead. He doesn't cease to be the God who raises the dead. He is the God who raises the dead all year long. And in God's wisdom, in this text, He is pleased to do a miracle. And that miracle is amazing. What it says again in verse 10. But Paul went down. So Paul pauses his speech. He goes down three flights of stairs. And he bends over him and takes him in his arms. Now you might miss that if you read it so quickly. But what that is. That, that is a, 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 um, a symbol. It, it's pointing back to the other resurrection stories in the Bible. It's pointing back to Elijah and Elisha. And how when, when the resurrections happen, which are very few in the Bible, they, they embrace the dead. Jesus Christ himself. I say to you, arise. Peter. There's something about that picture of, of the life giver putting his, his presence as close as possible to the dead so that through the life giver the dead can arise. And Paul does that very thing. He, he embraces this child he bends over and then picks up the child and through the miracle-working power of our God who raises the dead, Eutychus is resurrected. He's alive. And Paul says in verse 10, Do not be alarmed. His life is in him. Imagine what that would do to us if we saw such a miracle before our eyes. But then what? What? What does Paul do after this amazing accomplishment? I mean, that would be the crescendo of the service, right? That would be the, okay, roll the credits. Look what just happened. God raised the dead. We could all go home. Verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. He went back upstairs. It's almost like he said, okay, now where were we? Seriously, he's prioritizing these means of grace. A teenage boy just fell out of the window and died and was resurrected. Now let's all go back upstairs and finish what we started. Let's break bread. Let's take the Lord's Supper and let me converse with you. and, And Luke tells us in verse 11, a long while. Paul is not done. It says in verse 12... And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Luke has a way of using understatements in the book of Acts. When he says not a little comforted, he means they were very much comforted. And why? Because this resurrection was pointing them to the fact that everything Paul was saying was true. Remember, we may not see those sort of apostolic miracles today. We don't have apostles alive today. Anyone who says, I'm apostle so-and-so, is misguided at best and heretical at worst. We may not see these kinds of miracles. We may not see limbs growing back. We may not see resurrections from the dead. But in the first century, and I think we've said this a few times through the book of Acts, God often coupled preaching with miracles so that the early believers, who were often illiterate and only knew about Judaism, would understand that the God of this universe validated that message. That's why Pentecost happened. That's why all the miracles in the first few chapters, and that's why this miracle happened. So that the people at Troas would know that when Paul says that God is real, They would see it with their own eyes. When Paul says that Jesus is God's Son, that this would validate his message. And they went away, the Bible says in verse 12, not a little comforted. Oh, the comfort of knowing that God is with us, the comfort of knowing that God is for us. They were comforted because the God who raises the dead had visited their assembly. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the miracle in the mundane. When I say mundane, I don't know what comes to your mind, but often mundane, that word carries the connotation of boring. But mundane comes from the Latin word that means world. Just like in Spanish, mundo means world. So it simply describes the normal order of things. In other words, the ordinary the ordinary things and we've said this i know several times through the book of acts but this is one of the major themes in this book is that god does the extraordinary through the ordinary we don't have to do some sort of rain dance to conjure up our god we don't have to come up with new programs and trends and fads in order to see miracles we don't have to manufacture some sort of revival We simply have to be faithful to the ordinary things and watch God do His work. Maybe it was an ordinary guy, the Apostle Paul, but he was an apostle of the risen Christ. Maybe he was giving an ordinary speech and just carrying on and on, but in his speech were the words of life. And had not God raised Eutychus, He would still be the God who raises the dead. My brothers and sisters, every day is an opportunity to connect to the supernatural, to the heavenly, through communion with God. God has come to earth. Isn't that awesome? We don't deserve. There's such a gap between us and God. Isaiah 59 tells us our sins have separated us from God. But in the incarnation, God the Son becomes human. Heaven touches earth. And every day you and I, through the intercession of Christ, have the opportunity to meet with God. But how? Do I have to pass through some sort of ritual, like some sort of amazing, spectacular thing? No, it's through the ordinary means of grace, through what we would call the mundane, the regular program that God has has prescribed for the church, prayer, worship, scripture, fellowship, the things that we take for granted, the things that many other believers are so restless looking for the next big thing, the next revival. God will give revival, but he will do it in his time. We must be faithful to the ordinary things God has given us. Can you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews 12. So I want to spend a few moments here <clears throat> because this is such an important passage of scripture. That tells us that when God's people meet There are things going on behind the scenes That we often forget And just as that upper room in Troas 2,000 years ago Which might have seemed very mundane A bunch of people in a room with many lamps And a guy speaking over and over and over And long and long and long So too when you gather Whether it's here in Kearney or any other church If there's someone preaching the word faithfully and songs are being sung, and fellowship is being had, and it might seem mundane and ordinary, and just another Sunday, please may the Lord help us by His Word to open our eyes to see what's actually happening. Because you may not see it like they did, but there are miracles happening even now, even in this room, even in our hearts. Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 24, describes what happens when we gather together. And it says this, verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He's referring to the old covenant. He's referring to what Israel saw in the wilderness. He's referring to the, the pillar of, of fire and the cloud. And, and, you, and you can't touch it Right? But what have we come to? What's the difference? Verse 22. This is us. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us, that when we gather together on the Lord's day, heaven is meeting earth. You, We are being, in a sense, transported spiritually into the heavenly realms. It's the already-not-yet tension, right? We're not there yet, but spiritually we are there. We're already there, yet we're here at the same time. And when we come and gather, God is with us. He is among His people, and He is assuring us that He is for His people And so when you come to church, it's not just a guy who is reading from an old book. It is is a preacher giving you the words of life from the infallible, inspired word of God. And these words literally transform our lives. Every time you're confronted with something from the Bible and you're able by the Spirit to put it into practice, so much so it changes your life, that is a miracle. When we come together, we're not just a bunch of people singing songs as if we're in a concert or some kumbaya ceremony. We are the redeemed singing heavenly praises that the Bible says teach and admonish one another as we sing them. These songs of Zion that we sing glorify God. The angels are joining with us in chorus. And it refreshes the soul. Secular music can't do that. When you come to gather together, you're not just taking an unleavened cracker and a little cup of juice. But by faith we are being transported to God's throne. And we are feasting on the body and blood of Christ by faith. When you come together, we're not just bowing our heads in a ceremony and making a few utterances into the air just to make ourselves feel good in some therapeutic fashion. No, no. When we come together to pray, human beings, think about this, human fallen beings are having communion with the God of this universe. Because you have access to God. Because the veil has been torn. Because by the blood of Christ we can enter boldly into God's throne. And we can call Him Father. That is a miracle. When we remind ourselves each and every week of the gospel, we're not just telling stories, you know, children's stories, so that we all have a little moral and a lesson that Jesus made a sacrifice. No! We're not just telling a story of a crucified carpenter to make us feel good. No, when we give the gospel, we are sharing the power of God unto salvation. Do not miss the miracles that are happening every time we gather. Do not miss the miracles that happen every day of your life. Because, brothers and sisters, our tendency is to go to one extreme or another, right? Sometimes we we so treasure the mundane, the ordinary, where we're so fixed on the way we've always done things that we miss. We miss the power of God. There are churches that are dying because of their their overcommitment to these secular mundane things. Sometimes, you know, we we joke about churches that split over the color of the carpet. But listen, that comes from truth. There are churches more concerned with things like that than the miracles that God is doing through the preaching of the gospel and prayers and worship. We would call that legalism or or dead traditionalism. But there's another extreme as well, right? The other extreme is to be so bored with the mundane, to to sort of dismiss order in the service and only go after the, the spectacular and the miracles. And so we've got to amp the music up as high as we can. We've got to to be the trendiest church. We've got to have the best coffee bar in the foyer. We've got to rain gold dust from heaven. We've got to have a healing line and make sure that everyone gets healed. And, And we almost feel like if we don't do those things, we haven't had church. We get bored with the mundane. Another prayer service. I want to see something No, you forgot what prayer is. That's the problem. Are you bored with the mundane? Listen, what God tells the church to do, he will equip the church to do, and he will grant to the church resurrection power by his spirit to bless what seems ordinary for his glory. I I, I think about our own church plant here. We are coming up now on four years of being a church plant. I have not seen, with my eyes, any demons cast out. I have not seen tongues of fire. I have not seen miraculous healings. I have not seen a physical resurrection. But I have seen several folks come to faith in Christ. And that is a miracle every time. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our sins... And so do resurrections happen in our church? Are we one of those churches where resurrections happen? Yes, we are. Because when the gospel goes forth, and someone comes to faith in Christ, the dead are raised to life. And do you know that there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents? I've seen God raise teachers in our midst. I've seen God double the size of our church. This is all God's doing. He gives the increase. Every new member, every baptized person is a work of God. We just have to see it. There are miracles all around us. And how did we get to where we are? What's the secret? The other day I was was looking at um, this article that was posted about about this building and how it's going to be transformed into something different in just a couple months. And and I was interacting with someone saying, you know, our church meets there. They're like, oh, well, most churches are shrinking, so we have to use these buildings. And I said, not our church. And and listen, we're not a mega church. But just the fact that there's been some growth is unusual for this day and time in this region. And what's our secret? There's no secret. We've preached the word of God faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully. We've evangelized our community. We gathered together to pray. We've reached out to one another. You spoke truth into your families and your friends. You've raised your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We have done the ordinary things. The mundane. And God has granted to us, miracle after miracle, affirming that He is with us and He is for us. And if He is with us, who can be against us? And and I want to just park here for a moment and, and, and... Bear my heart to you and let you know that this is the truth that's ministering to me at this very time. I have shared over and over how the church is not a building. The church is not a building. I prepared you for what might happen, but then when I got that email that said you have 60 days to vacate, I needed some help. My flesh came over me, I was bitter. The thought of going to another city, even if that city borders Carney, would be eliminated from my mind if I only focused on the mundane. No, no, Lord, you don't understand. We have to have this building. Who am I to tell God what he can do? I was not a happy camper when I got that email. And the recent article in the community paper celebrating the great work that the town council has done in getting this property so they can use it for something other than a church really irked me. Now, from a town's perspective, I understand. They're not going to be interested in the gospel. But when the church told me that they want to keep it a church, their supposed desire kind of seems disingenuous at this point. And that grieves me. In my flesh, I want to retaliate. I want to storm town hall. I want to write a passive-aggressive letter to the editor. And I hope you'll stop me from doing that. But if it was not for the Word of God, doing a work in my heart and changing my attitude, I would be clamoring in a worldly way. But the book of Acts, as well as encouragement from others, has helped me in ways I cannot number. And listen, even that is a miracle. Have you ever tried to change a human heart? You can't do it. But God's Word can. And two weeks ago when we met in that that hall to discuss of the need to move, I went home probably more encouraged from a Sunday than I have in a long time. That meeting that we had ran so smooth, and you processed the news of losing this building so well with such poise. There seemed to be such unity of mind. I know that this was a spirit-wrought work. And how do I know? Because church history is filled with example after example of churches falling apart because of disunity over things like this. Like I said, the color of the carpet, what time we're going to meet. And especially these last few years with heightened political tension and disagreements over COVID policies and increased polarization in our world, churches all around are experiencing hardships. Suspicion of authority. Distrust of leadership. But what I saw a few weeks ago was a church that was united in mission. Standing together, ready to see what does God have for us next. If you handled that news the way I initially did, I don't know if I could handle it. But your poise and your receptivity and unity and mission-mindedness was such an encouragement to me. And because He is the God who raises the dead, we know that we can trust His plan. He's got something better in store for us. So whether God moves things around in an unexpected way, and we stay here, even though we're pretty sure we're not going to, whether He gives us the space that we're looking at in North Arlington, or whether we need to meet in the park for the summer, or move to another town, our determination is this. Let us be faithful to the ordinary, the mundane mundane things that God called us to do, no matter where we are, and watch Him work. So whether in a few months we're in a cafeteria or a nicer sanctuary, whether we're still here or in a park, whether we cram into my living room and put many lamps in it, just a first century feel for it, what will we do? What are we gonna do? We're gonna preach the gospel. We're going to remind ourselves and tell everyone that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that we are dead in our sins and sinners against the Holy God, and we need a Savior, and in love, God has provided that Savior in the perfect Son of God who died on the cross for sinners like us, absorbing the wrath of God, and three days later rose again, and He calls us to repent and believe in Him to be saved. And we're going to still say that, no matter where we go. When we meet together, we're still going to exposit the Word of God. We're going to open it up, look at what it says, and explain what it means. When we gather together, we're going to pray. We're going to make intercessions known to God. We're going to praise the Lord together in song. Sound system or no sound system, we're going to praise Him together. We're going to care for one another. We're going to bear each other's burdens. We're going to put into practice what we've been teaching on Tuesday nights. We're going to reach our community, whether that's Kearney or North Arlington or Belleville or Nutley or wherever. We're going to reach our community with the gospel. We're going to continue to support missionaries around the world, praying for them, giving to them. And there's so many more things I could list. But no matter where we are, what time we meet, what kind of facility, air conditioned or not, heat or not, indoors, outdoors, we will do all this knowing that the God who raises the dead is with us and he is for us and he's given us his word and he will never fail us. Let me just end this section by looking with you to verses 13 to 16 very briefly. Remember, Paul would not have been in Troas to see this miracle had he not been rerouted. But now he's about to leave. Verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul um, aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to uh, Mitalini. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios... The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That's a lot of towns, a lot of intention. But notice something that's similar to the first few verses and the last few, and you can see it in your outline there. God's sovereignty over Paul's travels are manifest in circumstances. Paul intended one thing. God raised an obstacle and rerouted him. In the next passage, what we just read, God, we don't see any circumstances. We don't see any rerouting. Matter of fact, Luke continues to tell us about Paul's intentions. Verse 13, intending. Uh, Intending twice, verse 16, decided. Verse 16 says hastening. So Paul has intentions, and he's making haste because he has a desire to go to Jerusalem. And I just want to remind you that God is sovereign even over our intentions. That if it is God's will for Paul to be at Jerusalem during Pentecost, God will make that happen. If it is not, God will make another way. And if there's anything we get out of this, brothers and sisters, is that we have to be malleable, adaptable, and recognize that our plans can never thwart the plan of God. And our frustration comes in when we think that God got it wrong. And I know that's a temptation. I felt it. You felt it. But the truth that we need to hear today is that God never gets it wrong. So my application to you is very simple. No matter what God is doing in your life, stay on the narrow path, even when that narrow path seems to be winding in ways you never imagined. Don't come to an obstacle on the path that God gave you and think, you know what? The world's path is better. I'll go here. Because that's the most tragic mistake you can make. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That is true for you, that is true for us as a church. The other day, as I was at first trying to make um, phone calls for donations for the building fund, and now with the news of the building being sold, I have to um, kind of talk to people and say, oh, by the way, we don't need that, but you can still give if you want. But, you know, it's kind of like a funny conversation. But I talked to my childhood pastor, a man who who I sat under his preaching every other Sunday for 14 years. I hadn't talked to him in many years, and he called me and we, we talked about what's going on here. He's very thankful to hear that I'm a pastor in, in a church. And when I told him what happened with the building, he said, he quoted one of his favorite authors, and he said, This God's will is exactly what we would do if we knew all the facts. God knows all the facts. He knows everything about this building and why it's not for us. He knows everything about that job that you thought you had, but you were rejected. Or that person that you thought would be your spouse and it didn't work out. That place that you wanted to go. And I know sometimes you can't make sense of that, right? I'm not trying to give you some coping, sort of trite expression, Just pick your chin up. Look, there are disappointments. There are griefs in life. But the only way that we can continue to move forward in faithfulness to God is to remember that He knows all the facts. Even when you can't explain it. He's working all things together for good. The book of Acts was written to encourage us that God is always advancing. He is always on the move. He always knows what He's doing. And what He does, He does perfectly Jesus calls us to the narrow path. And sometimes we want to see what's on the other path. That seems easier. Sometimes on our path there are twists and turns that we never would anticipate. But along the way, the God of miracles will remind us that He is with us and He is for us. The destination is always what glorifies God the most. And the journey sometimes might seem mundane. But brothers and sisters, open your eyes. Christ is walking with you through every turn. And every day that you spend with Christ is a miracle. Let's pray.